If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today you'll be hearing from Professor Neil Price, an expert on the Viking period. His new book, The Children of Ashen Elm, A History of the Vikings, has just been published by Alan Lane. Neil has also written the cover feature for the December issue of BBC History magazine. And our content director, Dave Musgrove, caught up with him to find out more about how the Vikings saw the world. I'm delighted to be joined uh, today by Neil Price. Neil Price is Distinguished Professor and Chair of Archaeology at Uppsala University in Sweden, uh, which, if I read your biography correctly, is one of the oldest established archaeological posts of its kind in the world. And you've written a major and extremely thought-provoking book, uh, The Children of Ash and Elm. Um, Now, before we get on to that... um, I don't know how far the book has been informed by the the, the big 10-year research project that you're leading on, uh, which I think you're halfway through, the Viking Phenomenon Project. Can you just tell me a little bit about that and and how this ties in with the book, if at all? Yeah, it's part of uh, an investment from the Swedish state into kind of centres of excellence in different subjects. Um, And the whole point of this project was to try and figure out how what we call the Viking Age began. And obviously the whole notion of a Viking age is kind of a modern thing. You know, nobody woke up on an afternoon in the 8th century and thought, whoa, it's the Viking age. So, But we're still fairly clear about what what kind of constitutes this time period. It's the time where Scandinavians start to expand into the world in a way that they didn't do before. And the question is why? And that's what this project is all about. And one of the things that I've tried to do in the book, which is very much linked to the project, is not to begin looking at the Vikings with the very first raid on the monastery of Lindisfarne in in 793, because they they didn't just emerge from a blank horizon and and just kick it all off. You know, there's a lot before that. So the book actually starts centuries earlier. 
looking at what has happened inside Scandinavian society in lots of different ways that would ultimately, centuries later, produce this surge into the world. We, we ought to perhaps just look at the title of your book. The title is The Children of Ash and Elm. So what's, who are the children of Ash and Elm? The simple answer is that that's the Vikings. That's who the Vikings believe themselves to be. Part of what I was trying to do with this book is look at the Vikings from their own point of view. It's a hard thing to do when you, you, know, you go back centuries into the past. But the, the kind of cliche, the stereotype of Vikings that we have now is almost always as other people have seen them. Usually they're victims, so that's kind of a biased point of view. And it's also, as, a, as an academic, it was, to be honest, a reaction against the title of almost every book on the Vikings, which is called The Vikings, or The Viking World, or The Viking Age, or whatever. And I'm not criticising anybody when I say that, because I've written books called that as well. And I wanted to try and get inside their heads to see what made them tick. And the title, The Children of Ash and Elm, uh, it refers to the Viking myth of the origin of human beings. Uh, at the beginning of the world, when uh, Midgard, that's Middle Earth, where we live, has been created, there are still no people. And the gods are walking about on the beach at the shore of the world ocean. And they find two stumps of driftwood that have been washed up. And if you think the way in which a, a sculptor can sometimes see the carving that's inside a block of stone waiting to be released, what, what can be done with that stone? That's how the gods look at these stumps of driftwood because what they see is what's actually inside them. And they start to kind of sculpt the driftwood and break it apart and pull bits off it. And gradually they release two beings that are trapped inside the wood, a man called Ash and a woman called Elm. And they're the first human couple in Norse mythology. And that's the beginning of the Vikings and it's the beginning of us. So one of the, um, the consistent things that you find in, in, um, in, in the, uh, the accounts from the Viking Age written by the people who they came into contact with is that they were never quite sure who they were dealing with. These guys turn up in their ships either as pirates or raiders or traders. And there seems to be very little information about Scandinavia itself that gets out into the world. And what I wanted to do right from the title of this book is emphasise the fact that they knew exactly who they were. And their whole outlook on the world was from the point of view of a very different mythology, a very different concept of reality, uh, a, a different mindset. And that's what I've tried to have as the, the foundation of the book. Excellent. Okay, so as you say, you've, you've managed to avoid uh, uh, calling the book The Vikings, uh, and you've also managed to avoid starting the book with Lindisfarne uh, 793. In fact, you don't really get to Lindisfarne until you're 200 pages in or something. It's, so, it's two-thirds um, of the way through, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite proud of that, actually. Um, so, so basically, as you say, you're, you're, you're requiring us to look deeper back into prehistory to, to take a view of, of an understanding of what the Vikings were and how they tick. So how far are you going back? Where, 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 where should we be starting the Viking Age uh, if we're starting it at all? 
It's not so much where we start the Viking Age, but looking at the things that lead up to it, I think we really have to go to the decline of the Western Roman Empire. So we're into the the 400s, and as it really is is completely coming apart into the late 400s and and, and into the the 6th century. And Rome is the, the only real superpower in Europe at that time. And when it starts to slide, an awful lot of other things are affected by that. And although Scandinavia is way up in the north and it's very much on the periphery of the empire, it was still very much uh, associated with it. Uh, the, the politics of the north was still linked to what was going on on the continent. And when you get into the the, the 500s, we're into what historians have for, for many, many years referred to as the migration period. It's when peoples are starting to move around in Europe um, whether it's as, as refugees or as raiders or as entire populations on the move. There's a lot of turbulence. And uh, this has been characterised for a long time as, as the migration period crisis. There's something very, very disruptive going on in Europe. And no one has ever satisfactorily explained what it really depends on. It, it's you know, changes in the economy and the flows of trade, whether it's um, the, the kind of fallout of the disintegration of the Roman army. So you've got lots of previously employed mercenaries looking for trouble or looking for cash. Um, lots of different things that destabilize, basically. And those things are affecting Scandinavia as well. And we've known for a long time that there is a very big decline in Scandinavia in the early 500s. And you see this in lots of ways. The most dramatic is the abandonment of farms. There are literally thousands of farms that are just abandoned. They're they're left at this time. And if you look at the environmental record, you can also see that a lot of the land that had previously been cultivated, so places where people are growing crops, growing food, is now returning to woodland. So even, even the fields are empty which kind of implies a a decline in the population, that that something really drastic is happening. And over the last couple of decades, there's another factor been added into that mix, and that's the um, a sort of climate disaster, for want of a better word. Um, It seems to happen between about 536 and 540. Uh, At least two, maybe more, huge volcanoes that... Um, put so much uh, debris and ash and sulfate aerosols and things into the atmosphere that it partially blocks out the heat of the sun, which has a huge effect on the potential for growing crops and things like that. And so you have this, this whole series of factors coming together to seriously impact Scandinavia. Um, and one of the things that we're working on is the idea that anything up to 50% of the Scandinavian population dies as a result of this. It, it's, it's an enormous thing. This, this is Black Death levels. Of, uh, yeah, of yeah it's, it's, it's getting there. Um, and the kind of key to this for the Vikings, because bear in mind this is 200-odd years before the, the Viking Age, is that the society that we know as the Vikings is the thing that slowly emerged from that wreckage of the 500s. You've got something very close to a social collapse. And then the process of rebuilding Scandinavia produced something different, 
something that had a very different um, set of, of social structures, a different nature of power, um, a different nature of war, all of which comes together to produce this, this special society, which over 200 years develops into the Vikings. I was wondering um, whether there is anything that goes back further um, uh, into prehistory in that, because where you are around Uppsala, there's there's Bronze Age carvings on uh, on on rock surfaces which have these sort of ship like images on them. Um, so that would be you know way back uh, in in prehistory. Is there is there anything uh, inherently you know maritime about this culture that's 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 building up um, way back in time? I think the word you've just used, maritime, is the key. Um, yes, Scandinavia is a is a water world. Uh, if you look, obviously, around the coasts of Norway, all the fjords, um, even Denmark as well. Denmark doesn't have the mountains, but it's got these deep inland waterways. Even Sweden, which is, is full of lakes and rivers, uh, water is the main communication medium for early Scandinavia. So that focus on the sea and on on shipping, on boats, goes way, way back into prehistory. You mentioned the Bronze Age, all these rock carvings of ships and things. So absolutely. One of the, I think, the, the key things to understand about the Vikings is that all the components of their stereotype, especially the ships and the violence and the piracy and the raids, none of those things are new for the time of the Vikings. Yeah, the Scandinavians have been going around in boats for, for millennia. Um, they've been raiding each other for millennia. There's, there's nothing new about that. What is different is that they're doing this on such a scale and pushing out into the world. And I think one of the key factors in the origins of what we call the Viking Age is that the Scandinavians for the first time start to kind of export the behaviour that they've been... Um, that they've been doing inside Scandinavia for a very long while. I think it's the the export of it that changes, and what we're trying to understand is is why. Is it useful to even have this this idea of Vikings as a as a concept? I think that's two questions really. One is 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 it a useful concept? And the answer is is sort of probably no. And the other question is, can we get rid of it? And I think the answer to that is also no. Uh, the one thing that's really important to understand is if we could somehow get in a time machine and go back to the Viking Age and say, good morning, everyone, did you know you live in the Viking Age? They'd have been astonished. Nobody would have recognised this concept. The word in Old Norse, vikinger, um, it means something broadly similar to pirate. It's, it's a word for someone doing a certain kind of activity. It's essentially maritime robbery with violence. And it's important to understand that's not necessarily viewed negatively. Um, that might be quite a good thing to do. But it is an activity. And it's you could be a Viking at the same time as you were something else. You could be a Viking for a while and then stop. Or you could go back to being a Viking. And the majority of people in Scandinavia really never went anywhere or did any harm to anybody. So the idea that we've used this as a label for an entire period of time, about three centuries is actually very misleading, but it is generally recognised. It's very, very hard to get rid of. There's also 
a subtle difference in that in the English-speaking world, when we talk about the Vikings, we tend to mean almost anybody who lived over there in those days. Whereas in the Scandinavian languages, even today, vikingar um, does mean those specific people, the, the, the raiders. So you right away get a linguistic barrier as well. But I just don't think we can we can get rid of it now. I think the only way is to specify what we mean and be clear about it. And once we've got past that, then I don't think we need to worry about it too much. Okay. Well, I will continue using Viking with wild abandon in this interview then. <laughs> um, so, as you said, you're trying to get inside the Viking mind, uh, understand the Viking mentality a bit with, with your book. And one of the most interesting things I found was um, your analysis of the Viking cosmology. And you said something like, there is no fully comprehensible geography of the Norse cosmos, which is is a is a slightly surprising thing to say. If you know, if I went and read the prose edda, I would I would get a, a sense of, you know, gods and and monsters and, and things like that. And I would think, well I, you know, I kind of get a I, you know, there's four, there's Odin. I, I understand it. But I think what you're saying is that that's a kind of a fossilized synthesis of of, of a, a later medieval idea of it and and doesn't really apply to what your average Viking uh, back in the, in, in the period we're talking about would have, would have understood? It's not that it doesn't apply, it's that it's gone through an awful lot of filters, including time, because the, the old Norse sources that we have are all from the Middle Ages. So this is centuries after the Viking Age that they describe. And they're also all written down by Christians. So there's a lot of questions as to why they'd even be describing this stuff at all and how it survived and so on. I think the biggest problem is that because there is no regular written language in Viking Age Scandinavia, they use runes, but they use this for inscriptions, for little notes and things. They don't write books. They don't write their own histories. Uh, and that means that it's predominantly an oral culture. People communicate and remember and pass on information simply from through speech. And as you know, if, if I tell you something and then you tell one of your colleagues and they tell someone else and you do five removes, you know, it's going to change. And imagine that over centuries. We, we can't be sure that what we've ended up with really resembles very closely what was going on back then. There's also other factors in there, which is that this assumes that everybody thinks the same thing at the same time, and they probably don't. There's all kinds of variations all over Scandinavia. And I think rather than seeing that as inconsistencies or a problem, I think it's to, to acknowledge the fact that this is a living world of belief. It's something you talk about. It's something you, you live through. And when today we have, like you mentioned, the prose edda, or you go to a bookshop, you can buy the Norse myths. And that's great, but they're kind of, they're kind of fossilized. It's a point where when the Christians wrote them down, they fixed them. They fixed something that was changeable and organic, and they made it unchanging. So it's not like a, a kind of pagan Norse Bible or a, 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 you know, a, a holy book of some kind. Um, it, it's, it's changed in the process of coming to us. And one of the things I find quite, quite funny, actually, about the, the old Norse um, the myths and the cosmology is that, that when you try and compare them, especially trying to get a geography of the Norse um, the world, you know, where is Asgard in relation to Midgard or Utgard or any of these others? We don't really know. And they contradict each other. You know, the, the, the numbers of things are different in different sources. You know, a river will go one way in one source and another in a, in a different one. And it, it's this sort of wonderfully 
confusing mass of information. And I think even in that, it does still preserve that living quality of of change. So that's what we need to try and get back to. And, and you, you talked a bit there about um, Viking literacy uh, or, or or otherwise, and you talked about about the runes and the fact that they 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 didn't embrace books. What, what does that tell us about the Viking society, the Viking mindset that they chose or, or 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 for whatever reason didn't have a have a bookish culture? I think that word choice that you've just used is really important because it's not that they didn't understand what books are that they didn't understand that you can take a quill and and use ink on vellum or whatever. They've seen books on their travels. They've, they've yeah. probably stolen them from monasteries as well. They, they know what they are. They understand what writing is. You know, it's really not so very different to carve letters on a stone than it is to, to write them on, on, on parchment. They didn't need books. They didn't want them. And the question as to why is really interesting. I suspect, and I say that because we, we don't know, I suspect it has to do with control. Uh, if you look at the way in which the written word was communicated in the Christian cultures, it's very much locked up in the minds of a few, uh, especially used for holy books where you have holy men to interpret them for you and tell you what's in them. Writing is, is a kind of power it's it's in the the minds and the abilities of a few, and then communicated or not to the many, and I think that's not really what writing is in the Norse mind. There are certainly um, levels of knowledge that you see in the runic inscriptions. So some runes that are not meant for everybody to understand, and so on. But you can see in the um, in the finds of runic inscriptions on um, more everyday things that, where we have the preservation conditions, so little pieces of wood, effectively kind of like post-it notes, but, but on wood. People are writing shopping lists and love letters and all kinds of things. A lot of people could read, and I think it's that almost a kind of democratisation of, of literacy that is not there with book culture, and I think that's what the Norse were interested in. Okay. Um, just just a couple more on, on cosmology. You've, you've studied um, these the societies for 30 years or something like that. You've, you, you know, you've devoted uh, your, your career to them. I'm, I'm tr- as, a, as a result of that, can you, can you give me a, an answer to a basic question? Is Did, they, did a, a Viking wandering around in Scandinavia believe that there was potentially an elf or a dwarf or a giant or a troll around the corner? If I had to guess on the basis of, as you say, 30-odd years' work, uh, yes. Um, not not giants, I think, and probably not trolls, though depending where you are, if you're up in the mountains, maybe. Um, but I think that today, when we think of Norse mythology, it's kind of natural that we think of the gods. You, you mentioned Thor and Odin mm. and Freya and the others. And we, we've built that into modern culture as well, with all the Marvel movies and, and, and so on. But I think the gods themselves are actually quite distant from human affairs. It's not that you think you're going to meet Odin every Saturday night. You're you're not. But Mm. I think that those other beings, um, in in the book I've called them the the invisible population, because I think we, we do them an injustice when we talk about them as being supernatural creatures, because I think for the Vikings they were entirely natural just like you know birds or, or dogs or whatever but you 
just that you can't see them necessarily. Um, and I think that this world inhabited by other beings like elves and dwarves and so on is something that was very much part of the everyday experience of people in the Viking Age. So, as I said, you, you wouldn't believe you were going to come into contact with the gods once a week, but you would certainly be careful to put some butter on that stone outside the back of your house to keep the elves happy, um, to ensure that your cattle don't get sick, um, to ensure a good harvest next year or whatever it is. So that um, that process of if you like, getting on with the neighbours, except that your neighbours are not only the people in the next farm, they're also the elves that live in the rock or, or the, the dwarves under the ground or whatever, is very much part of, of how you how you live. So I think from that, if you look at it from that perspective, again, trying to see the Viking world as they saw it, I think it's just that their their world included an awful lot more kinds of beings than ours does. Okay. And one more on, on their understanding of the cosmologies. What what did you sense is their attitude towards death? Um, is there is there like an ambivalence towards death? Or, you know, we have this this idea of Valhalla where the warriors go and they're all looking forwards to it and, and that's going to be a great way to go. Did, did, is that true? Were they embracing death? Or is that just one aspect of, 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 a, of a warrior culture? I think there's certainly a very high degree of fatalism in uh, Norse culture. Uh, literally so, this belief in fate, that um, your destiny is predetermined and so that your your life is, is fixed on a, on a path. Um, one of the interesting things is that although it seems that warriors who die in battle really do go, not only to Valhalla, but half of them go to Valhalla, Valhalla, the, the Hall of Odin, but the other half go to Freya, the goddess, in her hall. But beyond people who die in battle, um, it seems that how you behave in your life morally doesn't really determine what happens to you after death. So in almost all of the modern world religions, in some way, how you are in your life affects what happens to you after you die. That is not there in the Viking Age. And I think that must have been one of the the really big changes with the coming of Christianity, a completely different, not only a different idea of death, but a different idea of life in relation to what kind of death you were going to experience. I think that uh, also this this focus on Valhalla, which is, which is you know, it's, it's very old. The Victorians got very excited about Valhalla, Wagner and so on. Um, it's kind of obscured the fact that there's actually lots of places where the dead go. They go to Hel, which is uh, spelled H-E-L, and we don't know whether it has a connection with the Christian hell or not. Um, there's a kind of underwater world where people who die at sea can go. Um, there's all kinds of other places as well. And each of the gods has their own hall. It's not just Odin that has one. Um, so there are still quite a lot of blanks in our understanding of the Viking way of death. Uh, for example, where where women go when they die. We don't really know. Probably some of them go to Freya, but we're not sure. Um, so it's it's hard to give us a single answer, but but I, I certainly think that they, they didn't fear death. There is a, a, a clear idea that it's okay. And when you look at the... Um, for an archaeologist, the best way of getting at people's idea of death is, is looking at, at graves, because graves preserve the acts of a funeral. 
the deliberate things that people do to send the dead into the next world. And um, Norse funerary ritual is is very varied, but it, it also, there's a sort of continuous sense that in, in some way the dead are kind of still alive, they're still around. So you surround your farm with the burial mounds of your family and your ancestors and so on. There's a, there's a, a comfort in having them close. If you look at some of the big ship burials, um, even the, the greatest ones, the ships are actually anchored in the grave. So this idea of death as a journey and they'll sail off into eternity on a Viking ship, well, maybe, but, but that ship isn't going anywhere. It's, it's supposed to stay there. So maybe there is some part of the dead that moves on and another part that stays and stays with their family. So it's 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 quite an ancestor focused culture, isn't it? And you talk yeah. about that in in your book. And uh, I mean, that's you know, we we go back into prehistory again, and and we can think about the Neolithic and, and in Britain and people burying their dead inside these mm. big barrows, and you know that's been interpreted as as a as a, as a ancestor worship cult or or something like that. So are we? Is it an ancestor focused culture for the Vikings? Up to a point, not every dead person becomes an ancestor. Um, and we think that some of the some of the funerary rituals are essentially designed to create ancestors to mean to make just this dead person into an ancestor, kind of like a role model, not only for the living, you, you should be like, you know, whoever it is, but kind of even maybe for the dead as well. Um, and I, I think it is it's very much focused on the family. So Viking society is very, very family oriented, and not just blood family, but kinship in the widest sense. Um, you could call it social kinship. So um, people who've grown up together or foster children, foster parents and so on. Um, people who've made different kinds of alliances, political alliances or social ones. Um, this idea of your your extended network, your social network of people that you that you know, that is the absolute bedrock of Viking society. And that extends into death as well. One of the things that I find most fascinating about the Vikings is that just like all the other peoples of the past all over the world, you mentioned the, the Neolithic and so on, um, they're trying to answer the same questions that we ask. None of us knows what happens when you die. Neither did they. They thought they did, as some of us think we do, but you can look at their answers to those questions as a, a kind of universal phenomenon. And that, that's really interesting, I think. Their answers are very different to ours. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We've kind of always known this. I mean, every description of raids that comes from that time, they talk about people being taken away into captivity. It's not like we didn't know. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. 
and BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So uh, we've, we've done really well on this podcast. We've got quite a long way in, and we haven't got to Linda's far either yet. Um, so, uh, and, we're, and we're not quite there um, yet either, because as you said, what, you know, the, 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 the Viking phenomenon perhaps is is one of exporting the society somewhere else, and the the uh, the Lindisfarne raids seven nine three. They're not the first raids. You identify in your book that actually we should be looking fifty years earlier for the for the first uh, for the first episodes of these Viking uh, excursions. Well, just as I think that um, the Viking Age, in, in the largest sense, is an export of something that's been going on inside Scandinavia, I think that very much applies to the raids. And where we've been looking at the North Sea and the coast of Britain, the British Isles, um, with places like Lindisfarne and the other monasteries that were attacked. Actually, I think that's a process that begins in the Baltic, much closer to home. So the Scandinavians have been raiding around the shores of the Baltic for a very long time, and that really does go deep into prehistory. You mentioned 50 years before Lindisfarne. Um, The best evidence we have for raiding at that time is the excavation of two boat burials on an Estonian island, so not in Scandinavia at all, um, an island called Saramar and a place called Salma. Uh, and these are these are two boats that came up um, just about ten years ago, and uh, they appear to contain um, the remains of a raid that was launched from central Sweden, and presumably didn't go too well because you end up with um, more than forty men buried in these two boats with loads of weapons and injuries and all kinds of things. And there's a bit of debate about what it means. Um, some people think it was a diplomatic mission that went wrong, presumably very wrong. Um, but it's certainly some kind of militarised expedition from what is now Sweden out into the Baltic and, and what is now Estonia. And I certainly wouldn't say literally this was the first raid, but metaphorically speaking, I think this is where we start to see the first of the Vikings coming through. And bear in mind that this is, this is you know, it's, it's, what is it, 43 years before Lindisfarne. 750 is the date of Salma, as best we can um, determine it at the moment. So this is decades earlier than the first classic raid. And I think it just means that we need to look at that phenomenon, the Viking phenomenon is the title of my project, um, over a much longer span of time. And we should also try to avoid seeing it as a, as a process 
when we publish these things, we tend to have the Viking raids with a map and there's all these helpful arrows showing where they go and some dates and things like that. And it gives an impression of process that, you know, first they do this and then they do that as if it's sort of, you know, the campaigns of the Second World War or something like that. It's, it's not. It's much more haphazard. And I think we need to get back to the idea that those first raids were actually maybe two or three boatloads of men, you know, on a, a dot on a map. And then the next raid might have been, you know, a couple of years later or a decade later in the, in, in the early stages. And as it's experienced at the time, that's very bad news if you're on the spot, but it's not as if, you know, the, the kingdoms of England are, are starting to collapse. Um, it, it's something that takes a long while to get going. And when you start to get the real wars with um, the English, so the classic, you know, King Alfred defending Wessex and so on, that's decades and decades after the first raids. And an awful lot happens in that gap of time. So the Viking Age, even in, in the sense of a historical construction, takes a long time to get going. Okay. Now, uh, I think we should do a whole separate podcast on those Salme burials because they sound absolutely oh, fascinating. They're amazing, yeah. and the stuff, and you're still working on those, aren't they? They're still being. Yeah, I should say that 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 is very much an Estonian project, so it's been yeah. run by an Estonian team, and we're we're able to help with the funding in my project. But it's it's very much their project, so I'm I'm very happy to be associated with it. But so uh, you should talk to some of the Estonians about this. It's but it's a, an amazing site. I'll, I'll try to do that. I think you know it, it is so fascinating and so amazing, and I was I was uh, I was just flabbergasted here about it. Um, now look, so um, so I did a degree in archaeology, and I remember when we were doing the security and defence course, the you know the essay that was set was why did the Vikings raid start? And there's been so many theories about that. So can you just can you just do that essay for us quickly? What, why, <laughs> why why did they start? Pass. I think. That's it. <laughs> um, I think the biggest problem is that for. For a century of scholarship, people have looked for an explanation, a, a trigger, like a smoking gun that's going to explain all of this. So they started raiding because there was overpopulation in Scandinavia or because um, there was suddenly uh, what the military call a target-rich environment. There were lots of places to raid, so they were going to raid them. Um, or it was development in shipping technology. They've got the ships, they're going to use them, things like that. And I, I think that it is absolutely not any single thing that does this. I, th I think it's a, effectively a kind of singularity, lots of factors coming together in a rather haphazard way, but at just this point in time, so broadly speaking, the second half of the 700s. And I think the main thing is that inside Scandinavia, there is a gradual expansion of the different tiny kingdoms dotted around the landscape, which is causing a lot of friction. Um, some of those kingdoms are expanding and in the process absorbing others. So some are expanding, some are contracting, and there are winners and losers in that process. And that is causing a lot of disruption inside Scandinavia and also a, a, lot, of, um, a lot of demand for for want of a better word, portable wealth, with which you can do many things. You can improve your life on your individual basis. You can buy a better farm or, or whatever. Um, or you can use that to build a fleet or to pay your army or whatever. And I think that the, the potential to take advantage of what is beyond Scandinavia's borders, to bring that money home, 
by, I don't mean money in the sense of coins, I mean, you know, the wealth, um, profit, basically, to bring that home and use it in Scandinavia. I think that is what is really changing in the second half of the 8th century. So I think that it's a, if you like it, it's a cliche term, but a kind of perfect storm of different things coming together, not all of which by any means are especially directed. Uh, I think the first rage, there is a kind of, you know, nothing succeeds like success. I, I When those those first raiders from Lindisfarne came home with all this stuff and told their friends about these these unguarded stone buildings with or wooden buildings, you know, guarded by these sort of old men with silly haircuts and and, uh, and no soldiers um, and all this gold inside. I, I think that that probably had quite an effect. And it's not hard to see how all kinds of people could plug into that and think, hmm, I can do that. And over time, that starts to to snowball and get more and more organised as well. Okay. Um, now, you just talked about Lindisfarne. One of the, the very interesting points that you made uh, in uh, in your book was that um, you're, you're, you're um, suggesting that perhaps the people subject to the raids there in Lindisfarne, these, these monks with the silly haircuts, uh, might have been acquainted with the raiders already in some way. And you're, you're sort of basing that on uh, Alcuin and, uh, and his observations, I think. So... Go on, explain what, what that's all about. Um, the uh, the reference to Alcuin is a very specific thing. Um, Alcuin is a, a, a an English cleric who is actually at the time of Lindisfarne, he's in, he's in France, in Francia, and uh, his writings about the Lindisfarne attack are one of the sort of classic descriptions from the Viking Age that you find in every Viking book. He talks about, you know, no one could have believed that such an inroad from the sea could be made and behold God's church on Lindisfarne, you know, spattered with the blood of of the the priests and so on. Um, But what is far less noticed, I think, is, is that in that same letter, the same document that we quote over and over again, if you read on, it says, and who would have believed, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but who would have believed that these people whose haircuts, whose hairstyles you so much wanted to imitate would now do this to you? And he mentions these hairstyles three times. Um, and it's a little bit about vanity. It's kind of the, the sort of one of the things that early medieval clerics were sort of bash the populace with. You know, you, 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 don't, you pay too much attention to sort of worldly luxuries and so on. But it's also a real account. He's saying that these people who you admired so much that you wanted to look like them, look what they're doing to you now. And if you if you want to imitate somebody in that way, you have to see them. You have to know them. And presumably in fairly positive circumstances. But that's really only, that was um, something picked up by um, a scholar called John Hines way back in the 80s. And I should emphasize, by the way, that this this book is very much a, a synthesis of of the work of many, many, many people. It's not just just me, but um, that's really a, a written reflection of something that we see in the archaeology, because there are, there's definitely material from Scandinavia turning up in England for, for decades and decades prior to Lindisfarne. So there are connections across the North Sea. What changes with Lindisfarne for the Scandinavian relationship with the British Isles is not that Scandinavians are going there, it's that they're going there violently. That is the the, the shock of it, the surprise of it. It's that they're coming to raid rather than to trade. Okay, and that violence leads to one of the 
of the most uh, interesting bits of your book for me was this this the, the chapter on slavery, um, and um, you devote quite a lot of, of the book to talking about well you devote a chapter to talking about slavery and. Uh, I just grabbed a couple of books off my shelf, or, you know, standard Viking textbooks, and I looked for um, references to slavery in the indexes, and there weren't that many. And now maybe this is just me uh, not being on top of the academic literature, but it strikes me that it's not something which is talked about perhaps as much as, as you think it, it deserves. And I'll just quote from what you say. Let it therefore be clearly stated the Vikings were not only slavers, but the kidnapping, sale, and forced exploitation of human beings was always a central pillar of their culture. So that's a that's that's a pretty big statement there. So you, you're basically saying that slavery is is more important than perhaps uh, the people have been uh, have been talking about thus far. I think it was, and, and I should say again, I'm not the only person working on this. I, I think slavery studies in the Viking Age, early medieval slavery, is is attracting more and more attention over the past fifteen years or so. Uh, I think in a way it's one of those things, and there's other examples as well. We've kind of always known this. I mean, every description of raids that comes from that time, they talk about people being taken away into captivity. It's not like we didn't know. And even if you look at the later sources, like the famous Icelandic sagas, there are lots of of enslaved people in those stories. I think part of the, the distancing of our perception of the Vikings from that reality is, is this sounds very sort of simple, but it... it it's partly due to a word. Um, we talk about thralls, um, trall is the, is the, the word, uh, instead of slaves. And I think we've somehow managed to convert that into something that's not really slavery. It's more like servants or something. And, it, and it's not. It, it is slavery. And I think there's also a kind of, there's been a slow realisation of what the changing aspects of the Viking economy really require. So if you look at the um, the sizes of Viking fleets that expand all through the Viking Age, and by the time you get into the 900s or into the, the 11th century, uh, there are fleets of hundreds of ships, really hundreds. And you start working out, well, how much wool is required to make the sails? How many sheep do you need to make those, those sails? How much timber is required? How much iron is required for the rivets and for the ropes, um, for the, the clothes, for the crews, you know, all of this. And the kinds of numbers that you come up with, we're talking millions of sheep, for example. And then all of that ultimately comes down, well, who, literally who physically makes this stuff? Just weaving the sails for, for, for a fleet of Viking ships is, is a full-time occupation for hundreds of people. And we have to ask who. And I think that, um, especially it's, it's reflected in the, the settlements as well, where you get lots of um, little buildings clustered around big halls. Well, we know who lives in the big halls, but who lives in all the little ones? Um, and I think it's part of a kind of a cycle of activity that we've tended to break up into its component parts. So we talk about raiding, and then we talk about trading, and we might talk about slavery as well. But actually, it's part of the same thing, because when you go raiding, you capture people who are then enslaved, and then you trade in those slaves, and you can use those slaves, the labour of those enslaved people, to build more ships, and et cetera, et cetera, and then you can do even more raiding, and on and on. And that's why I say that um, 
unfree people are such a, a central component of the Viking economy. And it's not that this is something that appears suddenly with the Vikings. Um, as far as we can tell, slavery is a, a Scandinavian institution that goes back long before the Viking Age. But it's the, the engagement of that in a larger economic machine, this expansion, the Viking Age, that is what changes with slavery. And that's what also changes the whole market for enslaved human beings um, because they're one of the main products of the raids. We always think of it in terms of physical loot, you know, taking away church plate or, or you know, um, jewellery or whatever. But, but people are one of the main proceeds of all of these attacks. And the, and this the the Viking economy is another aspect of your Viking phenomenon project that you're you're looking mm. at, isn't it? Now, so so that slavery obviously is very unsavory to us today. Mm. Um, one of the other sort, of, I, I don't know, is, is it a trope about Viking society or not? This idea that it's in some way egalitarian and it's you know people are, go to the to the thing sites and they can all have their votes and it's democratic and and everyone's got got some mm. sort of certain sense of personal freedom. That clearly is at odds with having a load of slaves. Mm. Um, so how do those two ideas come together in the, in, the, in the Viking mind? I think the first is that um, I don't think enslaved people would figure in their calculations of personal freedom at all. I think they'd probably have ranked them with the furniture. Uh, it's a, a horrible fact of this. But um, I think as with a lot of... I mean, we think about ancient Greek democracy, but that certainly wasn't for everybody in the in the in the populace. And it's the same with Viking representation. So yes, they had these popular assemblies and so on, where um, some people, all men, by the way, um, would have a vote. But but they're representatives of larger collectives. It's certainly not one person, one vote. Uh, I think that in terms of uh, an egalitarian society, there, there are certainly, in some respects, more personal freedoms in Scandinavian society than in some of the neighbouring cultures. But I think it is, sadly, a, a patriarchy. Um, it is clearly men who have most of the power, which is not to say that women don't have agency and use it, because they certainly do. But I think we... I've often thought that the, the Vikings are some of the most stereotyped of ancient peoples anywhere. We have this image of them. There's, there's, there's a particular image of Viking men, the, you know, the, the, the raider on his longship and so on. There's also another stereotype of Viking women as being so uniquely emancipated with all these personal freedoms. And, and, and there is some truth in that, but, but it, it is a patriarchal society. And I think we, we need to, to remember that. I think it's also a problem because that there are, I think there are some there are some tendencies today to really admire the Vikings, and I, I think that's definitely something we should be careful of of doing. Okay, brilliant. Now, look, I've taken up loads of your time. I've got uh, another three pages of questions. We haven't talked about shield maidens. We haven't talked about homophobia. We haven't talked about multiculturalism, and we haven't, you know, we haven't even got past the the uh, the end of the eighth century, really. So, um, really, this needs a, a part two podcast. But there was just a, a couple of other questions, just little things that struck me, which I which I just wanted to hit you with. Did I read it right that you you're, you're saying the evidence suggests they slept? sitting up <laughs> were they smaller in those days yeah <laughs> um yes if you look at uh 
The few surviving beds that we have, as there's not very many of them, they're much smaller than than a conventional bed. So uh, a, a sort of reasonably average-sized person couldn't stretch full length out in one. Um, if you look in some of the, the later halls where they have these bed boxes built into the walls, they're described in the sagas as well, and they're not big enough to sleep stretched out in either. So they're either sort of curled up on their, on their sides, but... Um, we know from some of the descriptions that people are sort of propped up with, with cushions and things. So if you imagine, um, rather in the, in the same way as you might say read in bed, you know, with a bit sort of masses of cushions behind you and just sort of sitting propped up, um, sleeping like that. So in one of the descriptions of a, one of the, the best eyewitness descriptions of a Viking funeral, when a, an Arab soldier and diplomat called Ibn Fadlan um, encounters Vikings in Russia, he describes a boat burial and he says how they they prop the dead man up um, in in his in his bed um, with cushions and things. And I, I he doesn't seem to realise this, but I I think that the dead man is asleep. That's they're they're, they're putting him in bed. So uh, yes, they they slept sitting up. Fascinating. And uh, another one. They didn't have pockets. <laughs> I. I hesitated before writing that, and I, I looked through all my books on Viking textiles and things, and I said, they really, really not have pockets? And I, I haven't been able to find any Viking garment with pockets. And now I'm sure you'll get lots of correspondence from Viking textile people saying, yes, there is, but, but I, I haven't found a single one. Um, they, they really did uh, put grooves on their teeth? They certainly did. Not, not everybody, by any means. Um, there's, uh, this is something that's been found in... Um, skeletons from Viking cemeteries. Uh, it's really only only been discovered in the last 10 years or so. So several researchers in Sweden looking at this. Uh, it's only been found on the bodies of men. So the, as far as we know, there are no women that file their teeth. Uh, and it seems to be in some populations about 10% of the men. And what they do is file horizontal grooves across the front teeth. Um, they're sort of kind of like wedge-shaped in section. And it just goes uh, on the surface of the teeth. Apparently, it wouldn't have been that painful. Um, it sounds terrible, I think, but um, it, it just goes into the surface there and probably coloured in with something like resin. Some, so you'd have seen these sort of stripy lines across people's teeth. What it means is another matter. We don't know. There's, there's all kinds of ideas, whether it's... Uh, um, a mark of rank or a bit like a, a tattoo to show that you've done something or maybe it's how many people you've killed or it could even be in, in some cases a, a some kind of um, mark of enslavement like a brand or something like that we, we don't know it doesn't have to mean the same thing everywhere either but it goes on a long time so definitely yeah they file their teeth okay and they and they did have tattoos um it's hard to say. The, the the description I mentioned just now of the the Arab who um, witnesses a ship burial in Russia, he describes the the men as uh, being covered in pictures from their toenails to their necks. So it's full body stuff. We assume that he means tattoos, but it could be paint, but probably tattoos. Um, there's been no finds of uh, preserved skin with tattoos. Um, there's no tattooing needles or anything like that, but they could be organic as well. So we, we don't know, but, but it certainly seems like they had a lot of body art. That was Professor Neil Price. His book, Children of Ash and Elm, is out now. 
You can read Neil's feature exploring the Viking mindset in the December issue of BBC History magazine. And of course, you'll also find much more on Vikings at our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for a lecture from our History Weekend events. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.